Hello, friends, and welcome back to another edition of the Flip It On Its Head podcast. I'm your host, Reese Colchin, and I'm pleased to welcome to the show Christopher Oldie, formerly the LGBTQ staff attorney for legal services of the Hudson Valley in Westchester, New York. Additionally, he was the chair of the LGBTQ advisory board there, and it's his expertise around advocacy in the gay community that brings him to the pod today. Chris and I are going to discuss some basics when it comes to the LGBTQ folks, like, quite frankly, what all those letters actually stand for. But the heart of our convo will also center on the most vulnerable segment of that oft-maligned group, transgender children. Every generation, it seems, conservative and anti-gay activists focus their ire on a group or issue in the rainbow flag crowd that's meant to protect children and families. In the 1970s, it was homosexuals as teachers because gay teachers would, I don't know, get their gayness on us and make us gay? In the late 90s and 2000s, an almost successful anti-gay marriage stance took issue with protecting the sanctity of marriage until the United States Supreme Court ruled in Obergefell v. Hodges in 2015 that same-sex couples have the same rights, no matter where they live in the United States, as different sex couples to marry and be afforded all the legal protections of the same. And although each of these efforts failed to stop the progress made by the LGBTQ community to further integrate and normalize their presence in society, now those opposed have trained their sights on transgender kids and their ability to participate in high school and collegiate athletics, as well as receive the gender-affirming care they need to survive. Now, why this is important to me is that my wife and I are parents to a queer child. Our daughter, Naomi, came out to us in 2021. It was brave and so seemingly normal. And because we live a rather privileged life, she isn't subjected to the slings and arrows that trans kids or queer kids of color or those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are on the regular. Not that she doesn't deal with crap from kids at her school. Let's face it, she spends her day with other teenagers and last time I checked, they can be assholes to one another especially the different ones. But if Alicia and I would do anything to make better the life of our daughter so that she can live her truth, I can't imagine the road that parents of trans kids find themselves walking. So for this episode, we're going to listen to an expert tell us what we can do to be better allies to kids who really need them, to look at them and this issue differently. So after the break, LGBTQ advocate and lawyer Christopher Oldie on the Flip It On Its Head podcast. My string of having guests that I know and love continues. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Flip On Its Head. I'm your host, Reese Golchin, and I am absolutely grateful to welcome someone I've known for quite some time, uh, Chris Oldie, who is presently the executive director of South Coastal County Legal Services in Fall River, Massachusetts, but most importantly for us in this conversation, the former LGBTQ staff attorney for legal services in the Hudson Valley in New York and his activism in and around the LGBTQ community is why he comes to the pod today. Chris, thank you so much and welcome to Flip It On Its Head. Oh, thanks, Reese. Happy to be here. Uh, since I am a lawyer, just a little disclaimer, um, the views that I'm presenting here are my own, uh, not necessarily those of 
my current employer that I've only been with for seven months. So I will just say that off the bat. Uh, but thank you for that lovely introduction. Man alive. This is the first time everyone, anyone's ever issued a disclaimer before talking to me on the pod. But yo, man, lawyers got a lawyer. So, you know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I love getting right to the heart of, uh, of the stuff that I have guests on to discuss. Chris, how old were you when you came out? I came out formally to, you know, my family um, when I was 19. Um, but I had known who I was before then. I was just waiting for that specific time. And I was waiting until I had my first boyfriend and I was in love. And I, I had to let my family know that I was finally had that first, that person that understood me. Um, so I was a sophomore in college when I, when I came out to them. Um, I had come out to some friends before then, um, had experiences with friends before then and, and other individuals. But I would say that's when, you know, I, I, I formally um, told, told the world. Um, and of course the parents, you know, we had, we had our own challenges, but we got through them pretty quickly um, after I came out and they've been, supportive ever since. I feel like generationally, uh, people's coming out stories seem to, it happened at a younger age and they have a different dynamic uh, as you know each generation uh, gets to tell their coming out stories. I, I mean, I feel like we're only a generation and a half into queer folks being able to talk about coming out simply because of the stigma around homosexuality and being in the LGBTQ community. Did your experience mirror a lot of what your friends were going through? And how does it differ from what you're hearing out of young people and their coming out experiences now? Sure. You know, I think that when I came out, which was in 1999, we were still grappling with coming out of the AIDS epidemic. And so I think for my parents' generation who, if they had gay friends um, who were out, saw them go through that or perhaps died because of it. So I will say that I think that there was this fear that your life is going to be harder and it's going to potentially be the end of your life by being who you truly are. And that created fear, right? And that created an uh, a, not really knowing how to go past that. Um, even though at that point in around 1999, there had already been quite a movement of safe sex and the number of um, you know AIDS patients was declining, but those visuals from like the late 70s all into the 80s, um, I think permeated a lot of the generation that was watching. And I think I was even too young to really see those images and what was going on and 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 sort of the the panic that was going on there so i think that's but i think inherently i knew that was there which is why i didn't feel comfortable coming out earlier um so i know that that was that was definitely a conversation that i had with my parents which was i'm safe i'm going to be safe i know what to do to keep myself safe and it wasn't my fear it was their fear of watching other people around them or in the media um, succumb to this disease uh, that I think perpetuated some of that fear of, of being as accepting. But then I think from what I see and when I've worked with youth 
Um, and as you know, we've talked, you know, we've talked about, and you just said, people are coming out younger, feeling like there's a community to be able to have those conversations. I think it's a combination of a lot of different things. I sometimes look to Will and Grace, right? That was a <laughs> show that a lot of people look to as that was a way that it brought what it means to be gay. Now, very specific kind of privileged gay, but um, what it means, you know, what a gay person could be or have that was like other people, right? And and I think it did start conversations um, from there. So I think that media played a part in it. Um, people that were growing up out of the AIDS epidemic, when they started talking about I'm here, I'm surviving, when medications made it not a death sentence, so people could, you know, a new generation of people that either were infected or affected by HIV were able to then be the advocates um, to say what we have rights and we should have these rights. And I think from that movement, more community centers were created um, and safe spaces for people to be able to, to come out. And I do think it did take a little bit more of that generation of not potentially my generation starting having those kids who already were attuned to um, being more comfortable to them be able to make their children feel more comfortable. Uh, and schools had to have a part in that for good and for bad in terms of creating safe spaces for those people and for those kids to be able to feel comfortable coming out. You know, you've said so much. And the, the one thing I want to touch on is the AIDS crisis, particularly since now that we're on this end of the COVID-19 epidemic, you know, every time I heard somebody uh, on the news, in the media, online say, there's not been a pandemic in a hundred years, I felt like I was taking crazy pills. Like, does anyone remember the AIDS pandemic? Uh, and obviously, the uh, the stigma and uh, and the biases that were, uh, that, that plagued those that were, uh, young, gay, and suffering during that time was insult to injury. But I do remember, look, I'm Gen X, I'm older than you, you're a millennial. I remember I became sexually active during the AIDS crisis. Now I'm, you know, I'm cis hetero. I, I was not in the demographic of young people that were at risk, but we all lived with that fear. Mm -hmm. And everybody knew somebody who, or knew someone who knew someone uh, that had AIDS and there were these whispers. And I just remember it being such a difficult conversation to have with people that as I look back on it now, you are absolutely right. The strides that have been made in not just combating HIV transmissions and, and all the, the headway that's been made treating AIDS, but couple that with how the, the queer community has been portrayed in the media. First, from a news standpoint, because the AIDS crisis was so pervasive, but then in our art, in our culture, you talk about Will and Grace, and yeah, what we watch is a thing that can normalize uh, something that we don't know a lot about. But I was thinking recently how we went from Will and Grace and, you know, and, and Jack, just Jack. We've gone from that to a motion picture about a young queer boy and his coming of age experience, Moonlight, winning best picture. I feel like those sorts of strides create an environment where young people can see images of themselves and feel a little more at ease from a coming out and really being honest about who they are standpoint. Absolutely. And it's about 
what are the pillars out there that you can feel comfortable with? One of the things that when I was doing a lot of lawyering and going out to different communities and talking about how to work with queer clients or patients, and one of the things that was something that I really talked about was have that gay pride flag in your window. It's so important that you have a, a visual of what it means to be accepted or you're accepted here. And so those visual cues and, and the positive tropes, I don't want to talk about the negative tropes that we know are out there, but the positive tropes of those queer people helping other queer people and organizations that are open and affirming um, are so important. And it's it's honestly not even, like I, I tell this story a while back, the LGBT community center in Westchester um, I had received an award for them for some of my LGBT advocacy. And that community center was in my backyard as a kid growing up. Mm. And I never went, but I knew it was there. And I never went, I I don't know, for various reasons, maybe it was still self-shame. I still was questioning. I didn't, I didn't know, but I knew it existed. So it was always in the back of my brain as there is something in this community, no matter who I am, that is a place that I know that I can go. Whether that's because I felt safe in my own home or I didn't need that, but I do know that when I came out, I knew that if I needed to go to a support group or I wanted to go, it was there. And I knew that from a pretty young age just by just knowing that it was available to me. Um, So that's why it's so important to have community centers that are supported uh, because like me, even though I didn't necessarily take the services, I knew that it was there. Just like if you look into a window of a doctor's office and you see a gay pride flag, maybe you're not even going to that doctor, but you know that it exists and you know that that's a place that I can go to. Um, so having those visuals in society are really important for someone that's struggling or not struggling or just trying to ensure that they're not going to face bias by going to wherever it is in the community. So a lot of people, you know, I'll say from my generation all the way up through the boomers and 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 God bless them, what's left of the greatest generation, the alphabet uh, it was new for sure. us, right? For the longest time, it was, you know, the gay community, the queer community. Not even queer, you know, that was generationally, people do have issues with the term queer, uh, given that it was a pejorative at one point, and it's been, you know, reclaimed. And I I love the word queer. Um, I think it's fantastic. And I, I really enjoy I really like using it, but it's not honestly something that I even started using all that much until I got more involved in the advocacy and in what the alphabet means. And alphabet keeps growing and growing and growing. It does indeed. So let's start with when that became a, I don't want to say pervasive, but accepted way of uh, of referencing the gay community. And just for the sake of clarity, let's go through the letters and what they stand yeah. for. Yeah. I was just, I'm pulling up, I'm pulling up like a PowerPoint that I did just says I want to make sure that we can think about all the letters. You can call it alphabet soup, but like, <laughs> you know, L, lesbian, G, gay, B, bisexual, T, trans, transgender, Q, queer. Some people, I think it's less of fashion now. I think back of, you know, five so years ago, Q was also for questioning, which I think you can still use. Um, you know, an individual that is not sure, we still want to welcome them into our community. So people use I for intersex, um, A for asexual, and we also have agender. Um, Two-spirit is another term, a Native American term that people use. 
Um, also, sometimes they put a P for pansexual, and there could be more. So it could be LGBTQQII2P+. I mean, those are just the, the start the start of it. Um, but, you know, we are embracing in our alphabet. It's a mouthful. Uh, what is the acceptable letter to stop at? I routinely say the LGBTQ community. Yeah. Uh, if you get if you get as far as Q, are are you good or? I think you're good. I think okay. you're good. I think you're good. I, I think sometimes people go the QIA um, to include intersex and asexual. Um, some organizations stop, don't use don't put an asexual, put an intersex because intersex can also be an umbrella for asexuality as well. And as you've probably seen, there's the the flag, and then there's a the progress flag, and now there's an additional flag that also includes intersex in the in the flag as well to try and be as embracing as possible it's remarkable how it, it feels like the growth of acceptance and the broadening of the community is happening exponentially which can only be good my mom who you know who's going to be mm -hmm. 89 in a month she said to me she said why does it feel like everyone's gay this was like a few <laughs> years ago and i said lady it's not that all of a sudden everyone's gay. It's that now they feel comfortable telling you they're gay. And honestly, I saw the light bulb go on over her head and she was like, oh, okay, well that makes sense. I'm like, yeah, well think about it. You, you were born in 1934. How many gay out people did you know? And she's like, oh, well, we didn't. Right, yeah, exactly. And that is, it's wonderful to see. It is obviously counterbalanced by still bias and homophobia and transphobia um, that is still permeating in a lot of places. Um, you know, obviously, I feel very privileged to have grew up in New York, near New York City, um, and the legislature in New York is very progressive, moving now to Massachusetts. I have not personally been involved or lived in a place, really, that I felt as though the laws weren't there to protect me. Um, now, granted, every place has, you know, hate crimes and issues, and I've certainly had my fair share of not flat-out discrimination, but I felt a little different because of who I am, and I certainly represented clients who were flat-out discriminated based on their um, sexual orientation, gender identity, or HIV status. But yes, I think that as a culture, there has been a more embracing attitude that has been accepted by generations. But then you look at the news and you, you know, we've talked about this a little bit about the many number of anti-trans and anti-LGBT bills and, um, you know, trying to tamp down the expression of primarily our young people, which I think is going to potentially have that effect of that generation. I don't think we're going to go back because I think there's enough people pushing it forward, uh, but it's still, it's still sad to see. After the break, Chris and I talk about the targeted discrimination towards the transgender community, particularly towards trans youth, and how it follows historic patterns established by the opponents of LGBTQ citizens, and how what we can do to make the lives of a vulnerable group of Americans feel a little less vulnerable. You're listening to the Flip It On Its Head podcast. I'm glad you brought it up because I, I want to get into some of the legislation that's been passed on the state level that affects members of the LGBTQ community 
uh, particularly right now, as you said, trans kids, transgender young people in a handful of states are struggling to get the gender affirming care uh, that they need, quite frankly, to survive. The rates of young trans kids who have been left bereft of any hope that have unfortunately taken their own lives uh, is all too real. I feel like the easiest way to discriminate against trans kids is to focus on trans kids in sports. And so you had done some poking around. Some of this legislation, you know, there are people that have legitimate concerns, maybe about a question of fairness, but the way the legislation is written seems so discriminatory. What have you discovered when you've poked around under the hood there? Here's where I come out on this. The statistics don't bear out that trans people have a advantage in extracurricular sports such that there would be an advantage and a disadvantage to cis kids if they were to participate. It's just not there. And so, and, and so to then, based on no research or no real statistics that show that, it, still promoting legislation that, again, cuts off a swath of students who are just trying to fit in and to be part of their community, which then further alienates them and then further puts them into a situation where they're contemplating suicide is just continuously not only, you know, transphobic, but not at all thinking about the student and what they need. Anyone who has seen the Academy Award-winning film Milk, the story of uh, of Harvey Milk, the first openly gay elected representative who was sadly assassinated alongside the mayor of San Francisco, Mayor Moscone, in 1979, Harvey Milk led activism to stand against this famous woman, Anita Bryant, who was part of this conservative movement that was concerned about homosexuals getting jobs as teachers. I bring it up to say, it seems like every generation will demonize some segment of our of our populace. And when it comes to the gay community, first it was, well, they can't be teachers because they're going to make our kids gay, right? And then that didn't stick. And then it was about gay marriage, which when the Supreme Court finally ruled on that with Obergefell, then that went out the window. Well, now it's trans kids. But it feels like with trans kids, there's a vulnerability to them because they're kids right. that did not exist before. You started to talk about how it impacts young people when they're just trying to find safe places. Please say more about that because this is something that I think all too many people overlook, that it's targeting kids at a time in their lives when it could go hard one way or hard another. Well, you just think about a kid that's, trapped in their own body, not sure what's going on, maybe feels that school is a place that they actually feel more safe than at home for whatever reason. And this is not, this is something that happens, right? You feel more safe at school than you do at home. So you're going to go to school because it's a safe haven. But then your school or the state passes legislation that says, if you come up to this teacher that you love and adore and you feel comfortable with and you say i want to use this as my chosen name in the, in the classroom and these are my pronouns and i'm coming to you this is the hardest thing that i've ever had to do i'm expressing myself to you but i don't want my parents to know because i'm trying to manage that and all of a sudden the state passes legislation that says the school has 
a legislative duty to go tell those parents, then all of a sudden you're breaking that trust that that child has with, with their school. And or you're putting that, that teacher in such a vulnerable state by saying, do I want to risk my livelihood as a teacher by embracing this child and saying, yes, come to me. Yes, I, I want to know what's going on in your house. Or you have to say to that child, don't say one more word to me, because if you say something to me, I am going to have to tell your parents, tell the administration uh, and not be able to respect your authentic self. I mean, talk about where does that child go? right? Where do they feel that they can try and um, understand what they're going through if they have no outlet to do that? And I think that's when suicidal ideation and, you know, self-harm come in because there's not an outlet for them to do that. And I think these states that are legislating, you know, children who are trans or gender non-conforming cannot use the bathroom that aligns with their gender identity, well, how are they going to be able to express who they are? Or they, you, you can't use the pronoun that they identify in. You can't use the name that they identify with. You're just creating a, a, a generation of kids who are told that they can't be who they authentically are. And that just makes me very sad. It's incredibly reductive, but also it reminds me of how very many burdens we place on teachers already. The notion that a teacher would be put in the unenviable place of betraying the trust of a student that might rely on school and those teachers as, like you said, a safe haven, because not everybody's home life is peachy keen. In your experience, because you, you have brought it up, how often is it more often than not that you're finding that the people you've advocated for have had to, as you say, manage a home situation in regards to their uh, to, to their identity, uh, to their sexuality, and to just being able to be who they are? I definitely have seen that in my in my practice, and I, I think I see it more when I would consult or work with LGBT centers, right? And that's what they were constantly coming up against, which was a student that found the center as a safe haven, but was, and was telling all of the, you know, various people that they work for about their home life and trying to balance, trying to protect them where they could, this community center, I can protect you here. I can give you what you need here and try and work on how to protect you at home or try and bring the parents in. But sometimes there was just no connecting them. And, and I think, you know, something that I know that, more progressive states like New York and Massachusetts. And what I always tell when I give presentations or talk about trans kids, and because I do get the question, I hate the question, like the phase question, you know, how do they really know question? Mm. And I always just say, believe the kid, believe, believe this person who is coming before you with something that is so vulnerable and Believe them and trust them and do what you need to do to embrace the identity of this of this child. It's not something that you you express or come out without thought, even if you are younger um, and maybe not every single cerebral function is at its top peak. I mean, when does that even happen, right? If someone if if a child is coming to you saying, I'm having these feelings and, and I'm trying to figure out what that means. You trust them. And if you're an educator, at least my, you know, the way New York looks at it and other states look at it is 
what do you do to assist that kid? You use the name that they would like to be known as. You use the pronoun. You create two sets of folders if you have to, one that goes home to the parents and one that stays in the classroom if that's what's going to support the child. But that's not what's happening in most states. It's not what's happening. And also, you know, you talk about what trans kids are wrestling with in regards to their identity, their how their bodies are developing. Uh, and you said something really important. Trust the kid. Uh, and if a child is fortunate enough to have parents that want to find solutions, I tell you, listening to the stories of the parents of trans kids, you know, if I had a nickel for every time one of those stories started with, I never would have believed when I brought my baby home from the hospital that, you know, she would say to me after birthing a male child that my daughter would say to me, yeah, that's not me to listen to their stories about what they would do to just give their child a sense of peace and a sense of, of clarity about themselves, and then to have them come up against legislation and legislators that believe they know what's best uh, for families that are going through this incredibly arduous situation. I would imagine uh, listening to the stories of the families, you know, they tell their own stories, but as somebody who advocates for them, that's got to be infuriating to you. Oh, it's completely infuriating. And honestly, I had, when I was doing the bulk of my LGBT advocacy work, again, this is probably about, about four or five years ago, but I continued to be part of it in New York. And I would have conversations with schools who knew that there were laws protecting students, knew that there was a human rights law, knew that there was a something in New York called the Dignity for All Students Act. It was really about like anti-bullying, anti-harassment. And yet they still said, it's going to be too hard to implement some of the changes that you, you think we can. And I just always had to push back on that for my client, but also for myself to say, no, there's a way you can do this. Um, there's a way that you can follow the rules, whoever tells you that there are these rules, and also be a supportive place for a student to thrive. Um, I, I always felt like that was it without having to file a lawsuit, right? I mean, um, and there's obviously those avenues when it gets to a point where there's nothing else that can be done. But I think there, even for a progressive state like New York, there was always that pushback in terms of, well, we don't know if we can do it, or we don't know if our systems are going to be able to support that and the answer is figure out a way because you know we have these laws in place that are supposed to protect children so if you're not going to do the things that are protecting them then you're in violation of it so figure out a way but what i don't really know you know truthfully to be honest in terms of all of these other states that have passed these laws i'm not I, i'm not on the ground right i don't know i mean i know that the aclu and you know other trans organizations when they can are fighting you know filing lawsuits to try and combat some of this legislation if they're able to but most of it in some of the you know lesser progressive states are just being passed um and i as, as obviously we hear in the media what's happening to the families that are willing to speak out, well, what's happening to the kids that don't have that support or, or, or aren't able to speak out or don't have a voice. 
Um, that's what I don't know what's happening on the ground. The organizations like uh, like the one you mentioned, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, and the Human Rights Campaign, uh, yeah. they they are constantly advocating for marginalized communities. And the, as we've been talking about, the trans community is certainly there. But you said something so important. That's taking into account those that would raise their hand and say, I need the help. I have to guess that for every one hand, there's got to be at least another one that lives in fear of raising their hand uh, sure. because they they will not meet the aid and comfort that they're looking for. And where do they go? Uh, you no, know, I mean, we don't live in a world where it's just easy to pick up, find a new job, go to a place where the laws are better. Yeah. People don't have, there's a very few people that can have that flexibility. You know, if you are a privileged person and have a trans kid and you live in a state that has these anti-trans legislation and you're able to do that, you know, in the one hand, that's great for your family, but then that's an advocate that's leaving that area. Um, that's someone that has a voice that's leaving. And so that's a duality too. If you have the privilege to be able to go to a place that's going to protect your kids, I imagine that's a huge pull, right? I, I, I could imagine that if a family could do that to make sure that they have a safe haven going forward as their child grows up, why wouldn't you do that? On the other hand, then you're leaving a place where you know, you potentially have the ability to have a voice. And again, for those who don't have a voice or don't have the ability to have someone next to them stand up, again, where do you go? I mean, talk about, I mean, trans adults in terms of statistically are very poor. And that's based on a lot of different factors, a lot of it based on discrimination and bias, um, no place for trans people to be able to go. Maybe that statistic is going to change. But so if you are a, an individual of lesser means who's trans in an area where you can't move, then you're just con continually going to be beat against a system that is not respecting you and not enabling you to get back on your feet or providing you with the resources that are necessary to be able to you know, rise up. You talk about having the ability and privilege to go somewhere where you might be able to encounter the services and uh, a more welcoming environment. That speaks to the continued polarization uh, in our country and sort of the homogenization of these areas. I mean, look, we're talking about red states and blue states at this point. Uh, you know, people who listen to this podcast know that I, I lived in Southern California for 30 plus years, and I now live in a small town just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. And I feel like one of the upsides for me and for North Carolina is as a progressive liberal, Every year I voted in California, I was basically bringing sand to the beach, right? I, I now live in a place where as a progressive, I can stand with other people and be part of a solution in a place that might not be as progressive as a place like, uh, like Massachusetts and New York and California. People who discuss these things in the media keep saying how North Carolina is more of a purple state. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. But yeah. uh, the one thing that I do know is that at least in the urban centers, uh, we live close enough to Charlotte that we can get down there. I know in Raleigh too, there are th thriving uh, LGBTQ communities that offer support and they have uh, uh, services and places where uh, where people can go and be themselves. Uh, I'm a, I'm a season ticket holder uh, for the uh, for the football team here. No, not that football team. The Charlotte Football Club, the soccer <laughs> team, the MLS team. Uh, 
there are many supporters groups, some of which ha- have openly queer members. And, you know, they had a, a pride night that, that I have loved bringing our daughter to, uh, our daughter who came out to us a couple of years ago when she was 13. You know, so our personal family experience uh, having a queer child and her feeling comfortable enough to say who she really is and knowing that while we pulled her out of Southern California, we certainly didn't, you know, bring her to a place where she wouldn't be able to identify with other kids that are like her. All to say, slow and steady progress, but you bring up such a valuable point that we do need advocates in the areas where they're needed, right? Yeah, I mean, there's only, again, there's only so much that some of these nonprofits can go and do. I I think that there are community centers in those red states that exist, but are probably always fearful, very hard to get funding, um, very hard to stay afloat, but there are passionate people, I think, across the country in all states that that have a, a passion for this um and and to make sure that those those spaces are there but yeah i mean if they're if they're not there then it becomes like you said homogenized and if you have a homogenized group of people that aren't accepting of trans people it's not going to go anywhere well no politician ever went wrong demagoguing an issue and pointing to a marginalized community and telling their constituents that's who to blame for your lot in life yeah, uh, but uh, on that point i'm going to digress but only a little chris <laughs> what is it that you would share with a group or a person that maybe doesn't have doesn't necessarily have queer people in their life or in their circle, but they do want to know what they can do. They do want to know how they can behave. What should they say and how should they should act, you know, if they find themselves in the company of queer people so that they don't step in it? How can they be supportive of members of the LGBT community when they don't have a track record of having done so? You know, one of the things that I always like to tell people is if you make a mistake, apologize and move on. So pronouns are a big thing and they're really important. They're not just they're not just something that you say when you introduce yourself. And by the way, I didn't say my pronouns are he him. I should have done that in the beginning. Um, But if you're confronted or you're working with you're with queer people that you haven't had experience before and use their own pronoun and they respond and say, actually, my pronouns are they, them. All you have to do is say, I'm sorry, and move on to your next sentence. Uh, There's always this fearing of like, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, I don't know that many queer people and this is my first time. Like, don't do any of that. Just say, I'm sorry and move on, right? I mean, that's that's one example that I always try and and tell people that um, who are potentially dealing with transgender non-conforming individuals you know that they don't that they don't come in contact with for a, a long time with respect to some of the other ways to support right like you said going to the queer night the pride night in your football stadium go that night instead of the next week if you have an open schedule because then if you're supporting them and you're getting more imbued in the culture and bring your kids too why not it's always fun if there's a pride parade in a place that's near you go because you're not only supporting by checking out the different vendors and the performers, but you're exposing yourself to what the the happiness of, um, 
of, of a community. And if you're fortunate enough and you're in, intrigued enough to provide either money or time, then seek out those various nonprofits that are doing this work on the ground to see what is it that you can lend your voice to because they always need the help. Um, and they're certainly open to having allies there to be able to do that. And the other thing is, what are the skills that you have that might be able to be used? Um, are you an attorney and they're looking for people to help people get name changes? For I did that a lot in my practice. And some of it is just paperwork, right? And a lot of states have passed ways for trans people to change their names more easily. But it's always much better to have an attorney. Maybe you're an attorney in a town that has a community center. You haven't done a lot of LGBT work. Hey, can you take on a few cases? Like I'm always promoting volunteerism in the law, but maybe you're um, a social worker and you can run a support group. Maybe you can donate some food from a restaurant that you work at. All of those different things will enable you to feel closer to the community and you'll feel better about yourself. Uh, and, and, and you'll be able to get more insight into what your community is doing for the members of the queer community. Or maybe you're just a chatty middle-aged husband and father who, when he sees a young queer couple, does the thing where he asks, oh, hey, how'd you two kids meet? Uh, <laughs> I, I did that once, and like the relief that washed over the, the, these two gals, uh, you know, I don't meet people that I don't talk to. I talk to everybody. The thing that you're talking about and the thing that I'm, I'm being a little jocular about, but I, I legit do that, is it's about familiarity and normalization. Mm-hmm. I mean, please, Chris, I feel like, I, I, like we've had a nail on the head moment. You're talking about normalizing something for people that don't always get to feel that way. You know, just like I would hope that, you know, gay marriage, right? That was a very big um, move on like the LGBT community as like a push. And part of the push and part of the reason that a lot of the groups got behind it and lots of money got behind it is that is a way to normalize what it means to be gay, right? trying to show the person next door that your relationship and the rights that you obtained by getting this marriage certificate are just the same as mine and it comes with the same problems and it comes with the same joys and i think that we were able to do that and the supreme court was able to state that and hopefully that doesn't go away i don't i don't think so um, but you never know but i don't think that that's the case but that was that was a really huge push and, and that was the reason for it, right? To normalize, to, to just, you know, we're, we're like you. Um, so I do think that transgender rights and trans issues is that next polarizing force that is really important to try and get to a point where that is that normalcy, that there's this, just an understanding that people get it. And I think we have a long way to go. There's there's a, a, a lot more, um, a lot more, hatred and energy towards that group than I think we necessarily saw um, when when the push for, for gay marriage was in full steam. Miles to go before we sleep, but uh, the old axiom of uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm. Uh, so for uh, any uh, of the families uh, or the members of a family that are listening that might have a trans loved one, uh, there are two guys that uh, that have your back. So uh, absolutely, yeah. So uh, Chris, before I land the plane, I always like asking guests uh, what they're psyched about. 
So what's on your radar that you might be working on or you got tickets to something that you're looking forward to seeing? Chris, what are you psyched about? I'm going to California on Friday um, and I'm going to see the Fugees and Lauren Hill, Hill on Tuesday. I know. Um, and I, although I have heard that her concerts start really late. <laughs> We'll see. I'll, I'll give you, I might not be so psyched about that, but I'm excited to see a legend, but actually more so excited. Not only am I going to California to see friends that are out there, I'm actually taking a training um, that's going to assist me in cultivating my skills as an executive director. And even though I've had this job as executive director for about seven months now, I'm really looking forward to speaking with other executive directors and, and learning what I can do to bring back to my organization um, that I'm really excited to, to move forward and, 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 and continue to push the great work that the prior executive director was doing, but bring it into a, a new dimension. And I think I'm going to get some really great ideas in how to do that after uh, uh, some time in Oakland, California. Professional development plus Lauren Hill times in and out burgers equals Chris has got a good time on tap. Yeah, I'm excited. Fantastic, man. Well, when you go to California, tell everyone I said hi. I will. Uh, and uh, Chris Oldie, I tell you what, man, the uh, the LGBTQ community uh, has had a lot of giants uh, that have paved the way uh, for guys like you to stand on their shoulders and continue the hard work. Uh, God bless your brother. You uh, you really do. You get you roll up your sleeves and uh, and you're and you're fighting the good fight. And, uh, and I've got your back while you're doing it. Chris Oldie, thank you so much for being on Flip It On Its Head. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, Reese. It was a great time and always good to see you. I'm so grateful to Christopher Oldie for his time and his expertise and sharing with us the best ways we can continue to look for opportunities to be better allies to members of the LGBTQ community and particularly to trans youth. Chris is that guy that understands that when you're a member of a marginalized community, you have a responsibility to make plain the road in front of those that come behind you because that's what was done for you by those that came before you. I'm going to provide a link to the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation's website for resources for trans families in the event that they might need them to help their loved ones in ways that matter. This episode was produced and edited by me, Reese Colchin. The music, as always, a track called Instep by Jess Guy off his 2022 album Macbeth. You can find it wherever you buy, download, or stream your music. Thank you so much for being here, and I will see you next time on the Flip It On Its Head podcast. <laughs>